Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Politico Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland. Today is February 9th, and surprise, surprise, we have a lot to talk about after another action-packed week at the White House, in Congress, and in federal courts around the country. A couple of quick notes before we dive in. We love hearing from you, our listeners, so if you have a question you'd like to ask, please email nerdcast at politico.com. And if you enjoy the Nerdcast, please subscribe and rate us and write a written review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. The first data point, it's the number three, and that is the number of senior Trump aides who have been skewered or lampooned or whatever word you want to use on Saturday Night Live in the last few months. And our expert panel actually has some really interesting points about why that matters Uh, not just in terms of what everyone's talking about in the culture right now, but how this White House is going about governing and how it's affecting them trying to govern. Our next data point after that, two, uh, aside from the big circus, there have been two cabinet nominees confirmed on the Hill this week with another to come uh, on Friday uh, as this episode is released. And that includes some of the people that Democrats have uh, opposed most loudly, but also it turns out in vain. And then our final number this week, we're dialing it up a little bit. It's 10 million. And that's how many viewers watched uh, Elizabeth Warren's video uh, just off the Senate floor in 24 hours after she was kicked out of the debate over Sessions' confirmation. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means in terms of the energy on the Democratic left right now and how quickly it seems like 2020 presidential speculation is starting to spin up already. All right, welcome back to our all-star Nerdcast panel this week. Senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Hey, Scott. Chief investigative reporter, Ken Vogel. That's me. Hi. (laughs) Nice tie, Ken. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Nancy Cook, ace reporter. Hey, guys. Uh, White House correspondent, Eli Stokels. Hello, Scott. And national political reporter, Eliana Johnson. Hey, Scott. All right, we have a listener question this week from Brad Wehner from outside Chicago. Brad, what do you want to ask? I've been reading recently a lot of polls. Uh, One specifically stated that Donald Trump is the most unpopular president to begin an initial term. Given the debacle of the polls in the last presidential election, what confidence do we have that this and other polls are indicative of the accurate opinions of the American people? And have the polling organizations changed in any fundamental way to ensure the process is more accurate? It's a really good question. It's one we've all been thinking about a lot lately. I mean, let's just start out. Eli, how did... How did the polls, which obviously, you know, there ended up being significant problems with them, just talk about your experience kind of interpreting them and how they affected your reporting, you know, when you were on the campaign trail in 2016. Right. And Brad, thanks for the question. I mean, when we were out covering, I was at a lot of Trump rallies and and covered Donald Trump for the better part of the last year. You know, you would go to these rallies and you would see 10,000 or 15,000 people sometimes in a room. And you would feel the intensity of their 
you know, support and passion for Donald Trump's campaign and juxtapose that with Hillary Clinton and the sort of more tepid reaction that you would get, uh, that you would see at her rallies. And it would be hard to reconcile that with polling. And, you know, we would sit there and we would think to ourselves, okay, well, that must mean that Donald Trump has a deep reservoir of support in terms of, you know, the people who support him really support him ardently. But it's not wide enough. It, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't match the number of people who are supporting Hillary Clinton. I think with Donald Trump especially, because his flaws are so uh, transparent, this was a guy who when, when pollsters would call, a lot of people were reluctant to say, yeah, I'm supporting him wholeheartedly because they were conflicted about it. And I think you know, only at the end when there was a binary choice that they had to make between him and Hillary Clinton did a lot of these people who may not have told pollsters – all the way you know, through the election, they were supporting Donald Trump, uh, decided to check the box for Donald Trump. Uh, that, that happened at the end. That happened yeah. in the context of a race that narrowed late you know, based on some of the news cycles at the end that were not very good for Hillary Clinton. But you know, it, is, it is hard to sort of second guess yourself because the polls are pretty consistent throughout most of the election. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it really speaks to the problem that, that Eli's talking about there. It's that you know, we have to we're, – we're still kind of trying to sort out – also, you know, whether or not this was a Trump-specific or, or not even a Trump-specific, a 2016-specific phenomenon where, you know, you had these two uh, historically unpopular candidates. And so just in, in terms of the ways that the polling industry is dealing with it, because, again, you know, while some of these problems may have been specific to that election, we won't know until we have more. Clearly, there have been a lot of elections recently where there have been polling problems. There's the Kentucky governor's race in 2015. There was the British uh, general election in 2015. And then, you know, to a lesser extent, the the Brexit vote in in 2016. And so, um, you know, we're seeing a few efforts by the American Association of Public Opinion Research, you know, doing a broad-based study featuring academics and professional practitioners that's supposed to be done in May. And they'll be they'll be publishing results of that with, you know, some suggestions for best practices for pollsters going forward to uh, to see if we, you know, might have an idea of what's going on and be better able to to capture some of this stuff. Also, you know, private pollsters are doing all sorts of their own research at the moment. Uh, the The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee just announced today that they were thinking also about changing up some of the consultants who work with them on the polling front and, and also some other industries based on their uh, results in 2016. So, you know, the there's kind of this rolling effort, both some of it's happening in public, some of it's happening in private for for folks to um, to try and figure out what's going on. Um, you know, uh, hopefully by later this year, we'll have some more concrete answers about about what that is. But, uh, you know, for sure, it's it's something that we're we're trying to think through a lot right now. As as you said, there there are polls out there, Gallup specifically, that shows Trump doing just massively worse in approval ratings than uh, than any any president at this point in his term. But, you know, even if you even if you bump his numbers up a little bit, it's still nowhere close to, you know, it's it's very much, you know, outside the margin of error to to have this. And so, again, you, you get in this uh, this situation where it's it's difficult to judge. I think we just have to remember that Donald Trump's a unique phenomenon. You know, he really had to pull an inside straight, as they say, to become elected president, and he did. Um, and yet that doesn't change the fact that this is a guy who has always had a pretty 
high seal or high floor and low ceiling in the sense that you know his supporters are never going to really I mean to this point his supporters are with him and it doesn't nothing nothing is going to change that so that puts his his floor in somewhere in the you know mid 30s he's always he's never going to drop I mean when he drops below 30% approval rating in this presidency I mean th- then it's pretty much curtains but well his, curtains for anyone <laughs> right but I mean but but think about this in terms of his his approval rating Again, during the campaign, it was never really higher than the mid, the low to mid 40s. And even as president, I think if that's where he is, right? And he's not that much lower than that now. If that's where he is, that's an okay space for him because he feels like he's got his people with him. And, you know, it's a divided country. So getting anywhere close to 50% is going to be difficult for, for anyone, I, I suppose, but especially for him. Absolutely. That's a great point. Brad, thank you so much for, for calling in. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your question. We appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right, let's move into our first data point this week. That's number three, which is the number of senior Trump uh, administration officials who have been memorably parodied on Saturday Night Live in the last few months. And uh, Eliana makes a great point, actually, about, about why this matters beyond you know the, the realm of, of uh, fun and laughs and Saturday Night parody. It focuses on the people who are the Trump team's public face and speaks to some of the difficulties the administration is having with its communication and messaging at this early stage. So Eliana, walk, walk us through this. Who, First of all, who, uh, who, who's been the butt of the jokes and, and what's happening as a result of this? Yeah, for the non-Saturday Night Live watchers, which includes me, I will say, <laughs> I've just gotten this because, uh, well, I think it uh, it's a testament to the fact that these things uh, seep way beyond the actual show and into the news. Even um, for people who go to bed at 9 p.m. on Saturday night yeah, like yourself. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer uh, was lampooned by uh, the comedian Melissa McCarthy. Uh, Kellyanne Conway during the campaign uh, was portrayed uh, several times, and Steve Bannon has made appearances as the Grim Reaper uh, several times as well. But I think it this really points to the fact that we're used to seeing presidents um, and political candidates uh, portrayed on the show, and it, it's rarer to see pr- uh, presidential aides or, and staffers portrayed. And um, I had a story go up last night about the difficulties the White House is um, having finding a communications director, somebody to handle uh, strategic planning for communications, big rollouts. And I think, you know, one of the risks such a person takes in, in, fill it, in taking what is arguably, I think, the premier communications job in the world is um, becoming, becoming sort of an international laughingstock. Um, and it's not fun, I don't think, for anybody to to be made fun of um, and become, you know, a, a laughing stock, um, be made fun of on Saturday Night Live. But that's sort of the position that the president is putting his communications aides in by forcing them to go out and energetically defend uh, every single thing that he says. Which is a lot of things, Ken. Yeah, and you know that once it sort of permeates into the into the popular culture. It's a problem. It's a problem for the administration. It, it actually reminds me of uh, a, uh, a relative by marriage, a guy by the name of Burt Lance, who is my brother's wife's grandfather, was Jimmy Carter's secretary of the budget and uh, got implicated in a scandal, ended up resigning, uh, never any uh, uh, um, uh, charges brought, 
but nonetheless, it uh, it uh, was something that a lot of people looked at as sort of the beginning of the struggles of the Carter administration. And when it, he ended up on Saturday, well, Night Live. it yeah, it ended up in a, a sketch on Saturday Night Live where John Belushi played him joking about his National Express car to send up the American Express scandals. Uh, he was actually the cold open, and he had his uh, National Express card voided after he resigned from, uh, you know, on, on the sketch after he resigned from the administration. So it does get at this point where, uh, you know, you, you know you have a problem when it's, when it's in the popular culture. But I think what's funny about this, I mean, you know, we all, Saturday Night Live has been doing this for over 40 years. You can think back to Chevy Chase as Gerald Ford falling down the stairs over and over again. But what's different, I mean, now we have, it's not just the president, it's like it's more fun for SNL to portray Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. I love that Kellyanne Conway's day off sketch that they did back during the campaign where she kept having to go do TV interviews because he kept saying ridiculous things. I mean, that was hilarious. But they're, they're lampooning the aides, not just the president. And I think what Ken is talking about is right, but you know, it's not that it becomes part of the culture. With Donald Trump, Politics now is our culture. We put a, a celebrity phenomenon, a reality TV star, into the White House, and there's nothing that the, like the, this is the way we. I mean, our culture now is all about consuming political news. Everybody in America knows who these people are, and you talk about you know life imitating art, imitating life. I mean, we now have a situation where this is this is coming from the Trump phenomenon, the, you know, the cultural phenomenon of Trump, and then. It's upsetting Trump. I mean, it comes back into the White House, and we understand this week that Donald Trump was not pleased because, one, Sean Spicer was played by a woman, and that bothered him, according to the sources that we talked to. And beyond that, I mean, you know, Donald Trump didn't want Sean Spicer to go out and sort of, you know, start his first briefing after the sketch on Tuesday with something to sort of add some levity. He didn't want him to go into the press room with a super soaker or to pretend that he was going to move the podium and attack Glenn Thrush with it or whatever he planned to do. Donald Trump didn't find it funny. And Donald Trump does not think Sean Spicer looks good or any of his aides look good when they're portrayed this way. I think just to this point of politics becoming the culture, there was a fascinating poll out this week that showed that, that Steve Bannon actually has enormously high like name recognition, especially <laughs> among what, more Democrats, Democrats. More yeah. Democrats know He's who Steve turning. Bannon is than know who Chuck Schumer is, which I think suggests that Democrats have done a phenomenal job um, vilifying him. Or, or you know, Saturday Night Live has has done a tremendous job. And we see, we see. In fact, we had a story. Uh, one of our colleagues, Kyle Cheney, wrote a story about how Democrats now see in Bannon the type of bogeyman that they saw in Karl Rove, which we do know was effective. I mean, th this is this is sort of the broader point here. People say like, ah, that's inside baseball. That type of stuff doesn't resonate with voters. Well, we know. The Democrats got super fired up and mobilized around this idea of Karl Rove as like the Bush's brain, the dark public, you know, puppet master, sinisterly, sinisterly pulling the strings of of uh, of George W. Bush. And so we see this, uh, we see the starting on you know uh, on the left around Bannon. We see the hashtag President Bannon. We see the Saturday Night Live sketch where Bannon is the president. And he dispatches Trump to like a little desk on the side of the Resolute. Desk 
desk to go play with toys. Uh, this is something that that bothers uh, Trump uh, quite a bit. And and as Eli said, it's also uh, been the subject of some disagreement within the administration about how to respond to it because it is something that sort of resonates and that they're afraid of. Yeah. How is how is this affecting the governing? You know, not not just the messaging, but the actual like business of the administration. Well, for one, you know, they they're having difficulty bringing people in to communications roles and you know, as a couple people told me for my story uh, they badly need some uh, somebody to do long-term strategy uh, communications director is one of the senior most uh, aides in the White House and they're having difficulty bringing someone in to do that and then they need someone to fill up Sean Spicer's super soaker for when uh, <laughs> Trump actually clears him to go out into the press room and uh, make life imitate art in the form of that uh, Melissa McCarthy sketch. It's just interesting because this is a guy who we all know is so image conscious and who is has governed so far. I don't know if governs really the right verb here, but he has presidented based on the photo op so far. I mean, every day he wants to bring people into the Oval Office. He wants the pool spray of the video of him sitting around the table talking to people looking presidential. So he's good at the imagery, but you know, the presidency is about more than just what it looks like. And that's where they're having a hard time. It's sort of putting words behind what they're doing, explaining a lot of the actions that you know symbolically they're good at portraying. But when these things have problem, when they wind up in courts, when they're basically asserting things that make no sense or are downright wrong and false, that's where they're having a harder time winning the sort of messaging wars. Well, he- here's what I've been wondering. You know, I, the, are, are we, I, I wonder sometimes if, if we being, you know, the, the media, whoever is, is possibly overplaying the extent to which kind of chaos has gripped this. I, I went back uh, with uh, Zach Montalar, our, our researcher, and we, we looked at uh, some clips from the New York Times from 19, this week in 1993. And it, it's, it is brutal. You had Colin Powell, the wildly popular chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, requesting early retirement because the New York Times reported he did not want to be saddled with uh, uh, Clinton's Pentagon budget cuts and uh, clashes over gays in the military. Um, you had Clinton heading to Michigan to, quote, reestablish his credentials as a populist, you know, what, several months after winning election on that, be- because, again, of these fights in Washington over, among other things, you know, that, that issue that turned into Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And others. You had, uh, uh, here's another headline, bowing to protests from retirees, the Clinton administration has decided against freezing the cost of living increases for Social Security recipients as a way of lowering the federal budget deficit. I mean, that that, that sounds like an administration in crisis right now. Is that? Is, I mean, are, where compared to that? Yeah, the, I think it's Trump important state? for us to note that all incoming presidential administrations do experience initial growing pains as the new president and staff, you know, figure out how to work together to run this sprawling federal bureaucracy in in, in a you know an environment, a high stakes, high pressure environment that's really without precedent anywhere in the world. So the difference here is that you have a president who has absolutely zero federal government experience. I mean, you're talking about George H.W. Bush. He just happened to have been the vice president or a very successful presidency when those headlines were published. And well, he was, this is Clinton. Oh, sorry, 1993. Clinton, nonetheless, a, a successful uh, governor, a successful yep. governor who, who had brought in a lot of like veteran. Um, uh, you know, veteran politicians to uh, to sort of launch his administration. 
Uh, and here you have a president with no pre- with no governing experience who's brought in a lot of folks with no governing experience, like Steve Bannon, like Jared Kushner, into senior, senior roles. So I think the learning curve has been particularly steep, and there have been uh, there has been an unusual amount of uh, infighting, or perhaps a, a more intense uh, style of infighting, and there have been quite a few leaks, and that's another thing that is fueling these headlines and fueling this sort of news cycle. This moment is that there are plenty of people who are disagreeing with all these decisions or feel cut out of the loop or are making sure that people in the press, us, know about it, which fuels these stories, which pisses Trump off more, which sort of uh, furthers the cycle. That's a great point. Eli? Uh, I think Ken is right that there's a steep learning curve for all administrations that with Trump, it may be steeper than even normal for some you know new people going into the White House. But in terms of how this is read, that story in 1993 I doubt had the same sort of public, you know, cultural saturation that these stories now about the upheaval in the White House have because Donald Trump is not, Donald Trump is beyond politics. And I think getting back to what we were talking about, about SNL and the impact of all this and the sort of public knowledge of Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus and Kellyanne Conway, it's not just that these people are on television all the time and social media and interacting with people on different platforms, but Trump is now such a cultural lightning rod. It's not just politics, not just people who care about politics, traditional Republicans and Democrats arguing over this and looking for stories that either make their people look good or bad. This is about, this is like a cultural social referendum that we're seeing with this presidency that is unique, I think, in some ways to anything we've seen before. And it extends beyond entertainment. It extends, I mean, politics now, Donald Trump is bleeding into everything. There are a lot of stories about how you can't get into an Uber, you can't go anywhere, you can't be in a restaurant and not hear people talk about Donald freaking Trump. And it's, right, it's like, there, there's, it's complete saturation. You have sports stars, Eli Steph Curry want, this week. Eli doesn't want feel that way at all, though. I mean, like, but you have sports people who are being asked about this and it's dividing locker rooms. We, we've heard Your about boy that. Steph Curry. That's oh, right. That's vicious. I mean, you have people, you have businesses this week, right? Nordstrom is under attack. You have Uber. The CEO feels pressure because in, in Silicon Valley, everybody has to take, you know, more socially progressive stand than the last. That The Uber CEO has to get off Trump's business council because people are deleting their Uber app. I mean, everything now is political and that is a unique Trump-based phenomenon that we haven't really seen before, and I think that's why you know SN. I mean, every there's no separation in the culture, or the culture doesn't separate. The culture is politics now. That's a really good point to end on, and a good place to transition to our next data point. So this is the atmosphere that we've been talking about. Here are some of the the practical effects of what's been going on. Our next data point is the number two, and that's the number of cabinet secretaries that Trump has gotten confirmed this week. It'll be three by the time the Senate finishes on Friday, and this includes some of the ones that Democrats have opposed most vociferously. You've got Betsy DeVos for education, Jeff Sessions, now former Senator Jeff Sessions for Attorney General, and on Friday, Tom Price for Health and Human Services is scheduled to be up. So Nancy, you know, like we talked about last week, it's been taking a while, but no matter what, there's this is an unstoppable machine, it seems like, to to get Trump's nominees confirmed. Absolutely. I mean, I I think that everyone seems like they're going to get confirmed, except perhaps Trump's pick for Labor Secretary Andy Putzer. His confirmation hearing has been rescheduled four times, and I feel like no one quite knows um, what's going on with that, and it hasn't been rescheduled. But everyone else definitely looks like they will be confirmed. It's just a question of how much the Democrats are drawing it out and how painful it is. The DeVos confirmation was really remarkable in that Vice 
Vice President Pence had to cast the winning vote for her, which is something that's never happened before. And even Senator Sessions yesterday, you know, he's been in the Senate for years, and that was a vote that was 42 to uh, excuse me, 52 to 47, which is also pretty remarkable of how close it was. And, you know, people like Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey came out against Sessions, which is also remarkable to have like a sort of a senator come out and speak a senator, speak against a senator. So I think what we're just seeing is, although it seems like everyone will end up getting confirmed and be in their agencies, the Democrats are really going to make this as painful as possible. And this maybe extends to the Supreme Court nomination, too. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting to see looking at recent cabinet votes for past administrations or Supreme Court votes. The senators from the other party who who vote yes, and there used to be a lot more of them, it always tends to be the veteran, the, the, the oldest, the longest tenured uh, senators from the other party who are going along with the president of the opposite party for these things. But of course, there are fewer and fewer of them as uh, we go on, and we've talked about before. You know, more than half of of the Senate uh, has never served under a Republican president, and um, it you know it. I think it there's obviously kind of a, a poisonous atmosphere uh, developing, you know, potentially in a very unique way under Trump, right, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, uh, w- the kinds of senators who vote to uh, support or back the president's prerogative if they're a president of the uh, opposing party, uh, they're, they're few and far between these days. There aren't that many institutionalists left in the Senate. I mean, think about all the newcomers that have come into the to the Senate and the kind of Senate that they've grown up in or cut their teeth in. They've come to a place that's completely toxic, a chamber that's entirely dysfunctional, at war all the time. They're on a war footing all the time. Plus, back home, if they support a president, uh, the base will go bananas on them and primary them. So, I mean, you've got all these really powerful forces working against them, operating with the same kind of mindset and institutional comedy uh, that they would have once had. And I just think that even once the confirmation process is through and all these people are in the agencies, I don't necessarily think it will be any easier. DeVos is sort of a great example. You know, the the left and progressive groups really saw the fact that they had made her confirmation process so difficult as a huge win. And even before, uh, you know, the vote, Pence cast that final vote, civil rights groups and education groups were really saying, we're going to watch you really closely and scrutinize everything that you do to make sure you don't weaken things like campus sexual assault guidelines or LGBT protections in the school. And so she's going into the agency with like all these groups just fired up to watch every single move. And I think there's a question of how much that will weaken her in her early days there. It's amazing to see uh, the NEA statement about her after she was confirmed, uh, where the president of the National Education Association said, we will not have a relationship with Betsy DeVos. I mean, when have you ever seen that out of, of a confirmation fight where one of the key players, a major interest group, went so scorched earth, not just in trying to uh, deny the nomination to to that individual, but also going forward. It was a pretty uh, remarkable moment, I thought. Yeah, and th- these are the strategies that we typically see in Supreme Court fights, you know, where, right. where they become rallying points for both sides and for an array of the sort of traditional constituency groups on both sides, but I think it was a little unusual to see it so aggressively in, uh, in, in this particular fight. And it does portend uh, a sort of return to the corner. I think there were, there was going to be this return to the corners anyway, you know, that like no matter who Trump appointed in that position, you were going to see 
uh, you know, teachers unions come out opposed and, and sort of dig in their heels a little bit. But uh, the degree to which Democrats made this into, you know, per our previous segment, a, a, a flashpoint in the popular culture where she was the butt of late night jokes for her uh, talk about arming, uh, you know, weapons in schools to protect against grizzly attacks. I mean, that was... Uh, something that it was a little unusual to see get that high profile. But the real irony here, I think, is that when you, if you were to measure the damage that you can do in a particular agency, as agencies go, that's probably the one agency that can do the least, least short-term damage. And I'm not downplaying uh, what the Department of Education does or the importance of education in any way. It's just that the federal role in education is very small compared to the federal role elsewhere. The amount of federal money that goes into education is small compared to, uh, you know, other other sources of it. And so, uh, there are many other departments and agencies where the uh, the the administrator could do a ton of damage, and that's not one of those agencies. Well, so let's let's get back to something Nancy said uh, a couple minutes ago about how you know as as drawn out and difficult as some of these nomination fights have seen it, it might not get any easier from here, especially once all these people are installed. Not just for them dealing with you know congressional oversight, but eventually Congress is going to start doing legislation instead of confirmation hearings, and that is, you know sets up a whole bunch of messy questions, right about uh, you know, the relationship between Trump and the rest of the Republican Party and Democrats in opposition and all that sort of stuff. Right, Nancy? Well, the perfect case in point with this is Representative Tom Price, who uh, it looks like is going to get his confirmation vote on Friday morning. And, you know, Trump has basically said as soon as he's in HHS and leading it, that's when our real plan for repealing and replacing Obamacare is going to kick off. But the reality is, is that there's a ton of different, there's about a half a dozen competing Obamacare plans on the Hill. There's no consensus. Uh, you know, the, it's unclear if the White House is going to put out anything. And so the idea that, you know, this guy is going to go into HHS and suddenly all these policy questions and fights are going to become totally clear is just not accurate. And uh, But he's kind of setting Price up to, you know, take the reins of that, even though it seems unlikely. To me, the magic number to watch is uh, 8 out of 10. And like, I don't mean it in terms of the, the magic special numbers that we always use in our segments, but what I mean here is if you take a look at polls right now, at least the morning consult poll that we did, uh, roughly 8 out of 10 or maybe a little bit more, maybe 9 out of 10 Republicans right now are okay with what Donald Trump's doing. They're, uh, they approve of his job. Uh, they don't have a huge problem with the more controversial executive orders, and that is going to color everything that happens in Washington. And, and the reason I think is this. Number one, Democrats are not going to work with this president at all. These are going to be four years where there's no incentive at all because number one, they can't win. They're not going to win the Senate back, and they're not going to win the House back. For you know, there are sort of uh, larger political forces at work there, whether it's the redistricting of the House or the Senate map in 2018. So they know they're not going to win it back. But what they do have to fear is being primaried in 2018 and in 2020. So all of the incentives are for them, and and the base is radicalized. So all the incentives is for them to just draw a line and fight, fight, fight the whole time. On the Republican side, though, uh, the question will be, how scared are Republican members of the president? As long as the president is still popular with eight out of 10 Republicans, they are going to be uh, much more malleable, they're gonna be much more amenable to working with him, and they're gonna brush off the controversial statements and uh, all of the, uh, you know, all of the other drama that's attendant with this administration. As soon as those numbers change, though, and members, as, as you guys all know, they have incredibly finely tuned political antenna. They will know it back home. And as soon as that changes back home, uh, that's when the uh, Republican agenda will run into resistance. 
I want to uh, switch gears just slightly uh, in, in this segment. We're talking about you know the the uh, how the administration is interacting with other branches of government. Obviously, there's there's Congress and then there's the courts. And Ken, can you give us an update on uh, what's going on currently with the the administration's rolling battle uh, over this? immigration and refugee executive order from a few weeks back and then yeah, that's now right. tied up in the court system. Right. A, uh, as as uh, President Trump said, a so-called judge on the Ninth <laughs> Circuit uh, uh, put in place a restraint nationwide a restraining order on this um, executive order restricting travel from uh, seven predominantly Muslim countries. And uh, the, uh, the Trump administration appealed that to the entire uh, uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, which is hearing that uh, motion. Now we're expecting a ruling any minute now, but no matter how that goes, we see that we, we see the left uh, and, and civil liberties advocates, particularly the uh, really uh, emboldened American Civil Liberties Union filing lawsuits all across the country, more than 20 lawsuits uh, challenging different parts of the ban or, or bringing specific cases related to specific immigrants. Our, our colleague Josh Gerstein reporting on this. So regardless of how this particular case ends, we expect this to go up to the Supreme Court. And it's really, uh, you know, become yet another flashpoint in, in Trump's, uh, you know, battles with, with, with you know, with, with, with people who should be on his side, constitutional conservatives, even his own Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, calling Trump's attacks on this judge who put in place the restraining order demoralizing and disheartening. So regardless of how this particular case ends up, regardless of how this, this uh, Ninth Circuit uh, case ends up, we do see it going up to the Supreme Court. And, I, and we see uh, this sort of pattern where Trump is willing to lash out in ways that perhaps put his own allies in a tough spot. That Gorsuch comment was so interesting uh, that I guess it came out of a, a private meeting that he had with uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, who then publicized it and, and noted, but his own people acknowledged it, confirmed Gorsuch's it. That's right. Uh, and you know, I wonder if that wasn't partly designed to just kind of pave the way a little bit for for Gorsuch and separate himself uh, from Trump in in the minds of say uh, those those ten. Uh, Democrats from Trump states who are up in 2018, we need to requisition a little gong to, to hit every time we talk about them. But, you know, I, I wonder if that was may, maybe a little bit uh, uh, of, of a, a tactic as well as something Gorsuch may, may well feel in his heart. Well, and interestingly, many of those uh, Democrats are going to the White House today to meet with Trump to talk about for a, what the White House is calling a SCOTUS listening session. And so I think that the courting is already happening. And, you know, Trump loves sort of being in the Oval Office and using that as a platform to show his power and strength. He's had tons of CEOs sort of in and out of there. And I feel like this is also using the Oval as a perch of power by inviting these uh, Senate Democrats who are vulnerable in 2018, who could potentially be key to getting that SCOTUS vote to inviting them to the White House and wooing them. He does love that Oval Office venue, <laughs> doesn't he? I mean, and also, did you see the the, um, the the scene with the CEOs where he is sitting in the chair and they're all standing around him? He is such a student of the optics of those situations. It's really amazing. Like you can easily envision him, uh, you know, working out the seating chart in the meeting, putting you know some senators like Chuck Schumer maybe two inches shorter in the chairs <laughs> than the others just to work that angle against them? I mean, it's certainly, to be, to go back to uh, Gorsuch's comments to Dick Blumenthal, 
it, it certainly is a smart play by Gorsuch. And from everything that we've heard, he has gotten rave reviews from uh, almost all the, the senators with whom he's met. And you see, and, and great optics too, you see the photos of him like fist bumping a little kid in the hallway. and An African-American little yeah, kid. Yeah, and playing with a dog, yeah. playing with a puppy <laughs> in the rotunda, like just killing it. Uh, but... It, it can't go over well with Trump that, that he said that he said and admitted that he said that, the, that Trump's comments were demoralizing uh, towards the judiciary. In fact, we see Trump, despite the fact that his own people, of course, his own people did confirm, yes, he did say that. We see Trump lashing out on Twitter this morning saying that Senator Dick Blumenthal never fought in Vietnam when he said for years he had major lie now misrepresents what Gorsuch told him? Question mark. And if that's a question, I would answer, no, he didn't misrepresent it because Gorsuch's own people, in fact, corroborated it. Nonetheless, you see how it's not going to sit well with Trump. All right. Well, we talked in broad strokes about some of the stuff going on in Congress this past week. Let's drill down into one specific incident. And our data point for our, our final segment today on this is 10 million. That's how many viewers in about 24 hours saw the Facebook video that Elizabeth Warren recorded live moments after Republicans used a little-known Senate rule to quash her floor speech opposing Jeff Sessions for Attorney General on Tuesday night. 10 million. That is an enormous number. This thing, this story has obviously mushroomed into something big. Charlie, walk us through what happened here and, and, you know, and then we'll kind of get into what it means. Well, in a, in a nutshell, uh, the Senate voted late Tuesday to shut down Senator Warren as she delivered a long speech against the nomination of Senator Sessions uh, for Attorney General. And uh, she was shut down because her crime was referring to a letter that was written by Coretta Scott King and sent to the Senate back in 1986 when the chamber was debating back then whether to confirm Sessions to a lifetime appointment uh, as a federal judge. But by reading that letter, uh, she was said to be impugning the character of Senator Sessions, which uh, is not allowed in the Senate. There are rules against impugning the character of fellow senators. Um, she had been warned before she was shut down, but she continued on. And so uh, the uh, Senator McConnell invoked the rule to uh, freeze her out and quash her speech. And, you know, ultimately it turned out to be a debacle for, for the Republican Party and, and for McConnell. The, the history of this rule is pretty interesting. It actually comes from one of my favorite Congress stories of all time. It was instituted after a, uh, a fist fight on the Senate floor in 1902 between two senators from the same party from the same state, South Carolina Democrats, who uh, got embroiled in some fisticuffs. But um, I mean, Nancy, what did, what did you think of all this? Obviously, it's, it's, a very, it's a very rarely invoked rule. And it kicked up a lot of dust. And as, as Charlie said, there's kind of, you know, a, a feeling that this was really blown up on, on McConnell. Yeah, I mean, I know McConnell is a brilliant um, strategist, and I feel like he usually doesn't do things that are just off the cuff. And so I feel like there must be some logic behind it. But um, I don't understand it personally. I mean, I just felt like you know, this gave Elizabeth Warren and the left so much fuel. Uh, people were so fired up about it. Her Facebook feed, you know, that night as it was happening had 2 million, as you said, or at the beginning of the segment. Now it has 10 million views. Um, and the Coretta Scott King letter was already out there. Like it was already something in the public domain. There had already been articles written about it. And so in my mind, and Sessions was going to get confirmed. Like it's not like she was holding it up. And so in my mind, it just made her sort of a hero to the left. And it also brought up both gender and race issues for the Republicans in the Senate, which 
you know, it's a little bit of a sensitive issue to them, particularly with the Sessions uh, confirmation and past allegations as he's he's had of racism. And also just Trump's own, the Trump administration's own views towards women has been problematic in the past. And so I feel like dredging up those twin things of race and gender at a time when they're going to win the confirmation battle anyway seemed like a, a not fully thought out idea from my vantage point. I, th- I think McConnell is uh, very often underestimated in, in the city, even as Senate Majority Leader, not just as a tactician, but also as a uh, political political operator. Uh, people often overlook the fact that he essentially built the Kentucky Republican Party from scratch. He took a one-party state and now made it, uh, it's almost a, a one-party state again, just about what it's completely Republican. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'm not somebody who easily dismisses him, but in this case, I, I think it's pretty clear that he just flat out wet the bed. And and here's my argument. The reason why is that you know I've heard some from some from some Republicans who uh, contend that oh no there was a plan there was a method here you know he was either taking a bullet for the team uh, or uh, he was trying to protect the prerogatives of the Senate as an institution and uh, ensure that Senate rules and decorum were uh, were followed. I heard that as well. That was such a talking point when after the day after that happened. But it really doesn't hold uh, up to scrutiny when you look at it closely because think about what's happened in recent years. You had Ted Cruz calling him a liar. You had maybe Tom Cotton uh, saying mean things about Harry Reid. Uh, I'm sure Harry Reid must have lit some people up. Either way, it's not. It, this was a weird weird opportunity to to implement to call her out on the rule uh it just seems odd uh, that he would have done it here and also it was just so ham-handed and tin-eared and for all the reasons that nancy laid out it was just a lose-lose and he's just such a clever politician or at least i thought he was to to, to make a, an unforced error like this one that only increased her martyrdom on the left um and here you know, there's one other explanation that i heard and this is just as ridiculous I think is the first two the other explanation I heard from a Republican was their theory was well they want to make Elizabeth Warren the to be the figurehead and I was the just face about to ask you this of the left because they think she's such an extremist well again like that that just doesn't hold up to scrutiny either she's already uh, occupies that position you know it's just none of them are really plausible explanations I think he just really screwed it up. It is interesting to know, Zach Montalaro pointed out uh, yesterday that Senator Steve Daines from Montana, who was presiding over the Senate when this whole episode blew up, was in also sharing uh, video about it on social media and, you know, kind of castigating Warren. And so it's it seems like the kind of thing that's playing on the, the, the what Warren herself is getting the most attention, but it's playing on the right, too, as holding holding her up like this. And um, but but you you don't think there, there's anything to the the idea that they really want her to to be this this figurehead this uh, um, this attackable eminence in the you know getting better and better known around the country. She's she's already well known, and I mean it just kind of seems like a, a real bank shot to to make that kind of argument. No, we really actually meant this because what we want to do is we wanted her to go on Matto and raise a gazillion dollars online and increase her profile. It was all part of the plan. Like, it just doesn't smell right. doesn't feel right. Also, just from a gender perspective, you know, does the Republican Party keep wanting to make their enemy foils women, like these powerful women? What does that say about the Republican Party and sort of the people that they're trying to reach? Like, I feel like it, you know, they need to... uh, 
pick a broader swath of enemies. It's just such a great point, too. Um, and you see that also in the Trump administration. There is just such a blind spot in that party for the the perceptions of that as like an old white guy party. It's, it was exe- it was exemplified by Trump signing the executive order, uh, you know, the Mexico policy uh, order with a whole bunch of older white guys surrounding him. And it's the same thing in the Senate. They, they just, it's a blind spot. And no matter how many times You'd think that getting mocked every four years at their convention for stacking the stage with people who, uh, you know, just to make the party seem uh, more diverse, you'd think after the autopsy from a couple of years ago, you'd think after year after year of being pounded on the head about these sorts of, uh, about diversity issues, but also about the perception that Americans have about that party, you'd think sooner or later it would soak in, but it never seems to. Well, and Trump, there's no Hispanics in his cabinet. Um, You know, Dr. Ben Carson is the only African-American. And the West Wing, you know, a lot of those shots, it's all men and occasionally Kellyanne Conaway. And, you know, as you said, with the executive order, he signed Friday night after the inauguration that Obamacare executive order, um, some of which, you know, Obamacare includes things like free contraception for women. There's a lot of sort of services for women and that he signed that with just a group of men. And you would think that someone who's so attuned to the optics of the Oval Office and the power of the presidency and the tweets and the management of where people sit and the photos, you would think that he, as sort of a master manipulator of the media and pictures, would would see that more. Charlie, what what does this say in the way Warren kind of leapt at this opportunity about how what Democrats are already thinking about the 2020 presidential race and how I, I think, it, you know, it's not always very visible, but in some ways, movement surrounding it is kind of surpri- surprisingly active and and bubbly at this at this point, just a few months after the 2016 election. Sure. I mean, uh, it, this was the point I was making uh, before. I mean, this is a completely radicalized party right now. Uh, there is fury that's just burning through the ranks after just two years of the Trump administration. It, you know, another thing it shows is just what a savvy political operator Elizabeth Warren turns out to be. You know, she hasn't run a lot of offices. She hasn't been around elected office that long. But you know what? She's got some game. And she knew right away that she had struck gold. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think every Democrat now who is even thinking about 2020 understands that there's one path to the nomination, and that is by scorched earth, you know, uh, take no prisoners, no quarter given opposition to the Trump administration on everything, because that's what the base wants. Well, that's why people were so jazzed up about Bernie Sanders' candidacy, even though some of the policy things he was proposing, you know, seemed totally outlandish to the Democratic base, like the single payer health care system or the huge tax hikes. But people were still so fired up, much more so than they were about Hillary Clinton. But the, the one the one danger that I see for, for Democrats, though, is is playing out right now in the DNC uh, chair race. They, you know, they, there have been lots of fissures in that party that have been uh, you know, overlooked or covered over during the Obama era. Well, you know, once you hold the White House, it papers over a lot of problems you might have. And those are all beginning to come out into the open. You know, the fight between the Bernie wing uh, and the establishment slash Clinton wing. Uh, but you're also uh, seeing uh, a, a, a progressive wing that is no longer going to sit back and uh, take anything. They are going to take charge. And I, I thought this was a really revealing uh, moment the other day, you may have read about this at the House retreat in uh, in Baltimore, where progressives were 
outraged and were vigorously protesting the idea that uh, Third Way had an opportunity to speak. Now, Third Way is the center-left centrist think tank uh, for Democrats. Uh, I mean, it's not a, a sharp-edged partisan outfit, but it is a Democratic outfit. It's a center-left outfit. And so progressives were outraged that they were even allowed to speak and present their point. And that tells you something about the energy in that party. And uh, it's not uh, in the center or on the right. It's on the, uh, on the progressive left. All right. I think that's it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, very much for participating. Charlie, thank you as always. Bye, Scott. Ken. Fun time as always. Nancy, thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you, of course, to our listeners. Uh, again, please send in your questions if you have them to nerdcast at politico.com. Please uh, rate us and write a written review if you have time on iTunes or uh, your favorite podcast app. And, of course, a big thank you, as always, to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and nerdcast researcher and Politico producer, Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week.